Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer, serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. And by Cape Fear Pharmacy, a local independent pharmacy providing health care and compounding services customized to meet our patients' needs. Visit CapeFearPharmacy.com today and let us take care of you. As the sun set on November 9th, 1898, Wilmington was a city on edge. After months of targeted white supremacist propaganda and a contentious election the day before that was stolen through voter intimidation and ballot tampering, the white Democrats of Wilmington had cause to celebrate. Their candidates had all but run the ballot and won their races. But this wasn't enough. The transition of power wouldn't be for a few months in 1899, and they weren't willing to wait. When a thousand white men convened at the courthouse on November 9th to come up with a plan to reassert power, they drafted their list of demands, a document they called the White Declaration of Independence. Among their conditions, of which they didn't believe the citizens of Wilmington had any choice but to follow, they declared that they would no longer answer to any person of African origin. They wrote, quote, The time has passed for the intelligent citizens of the community, owning 90% of the property and paying taxes in like proportion, to be ruled by Negroes. End quote. Their declaration sought to strip black men of their voting rights and demanded the majority of jobs be given to white residents. They also demanded that Alexander Manley, the editor of the black-run newspaper The Daily Record, leave town within 24 hours and his printing press be dismantled. In essence, this was an ultimatum. Their final demand was that the Committee of Colored Citizens, which they formed, provide a written agreement complying with their Declaration of Independence by 7.30 a.m. on November 10th, or the Democrats and their mob of armed friends would be compelled to force such compliance. As the sun set on November 9th, 1898, Wilmington was a city on edge, holding its breath in anticipation of what seemed like the inevitability of violence at dawn.
This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and landmark stories of southeastern North Carolina. As always, I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. Today, we embark on part two in Unearthing 1898, our special series on the Wilmington Massacre of 1898. In this episode, we will detail the events of November 10th, from sunup to sundown. And how did the agenda of the white supremacist movement sweep across Wilmington? What actions were taken by the white perpetrators of the city? And what horrors were the black residents forced to endure? As I previously stated, this is not an easy story to tell. But it is likely the most important one that we will share on this podcast. As with our previous episode, you will hear a conversation between myself and three distinguished guests who have all spent exhaustive time researching this story and its impact in Wilmington and beyond. So sit back and settle in as we rejoin the story of the Wilmington Massacre with the second episode of Unearthing 1898. Joining me now to continue the discussion of 1898 for our second episode are three very special guests, one of which you will recognize from our first episode. Lorraine Umfleet is back with us. And uh, just as a reminder, she was the lead researcher on the state's commission on 1898. And during that time, her and her team sought to deepen the state's understanding of what happened here in Wilmington and across the state in 1898. And they took their research and published a 500-page report. And then Lorraine used the research as well to publish her own book titled A Day of Blood, which you can buy right now. So, uh, Lorraine, thank you so much for coming back and continuing the discussion. Glad to be here. Thank you. And joining Lorraine and I for this second episode are two first-time guests to Cape Fear on Earth. The first of which is David Zucchino, who is the author of Wilmington's Lie, which came out earlier this year. He is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. And David, your book is really fascinating. And I'm really excited to have you on the, on the podcast to talk about the, the day of 1898 and your book. Oh, glad to be here. And thanks for having me on. And then finally, we also have Christopher Everett. Now, Chris is the director of Wilmington on Fire, and he is currently in Wilmington working on its sequel, Wilmington on Fire, Chapter 2. And I know a lot of you probably have seen Wilmington on Fire, and it might even have been your first introduction to the story of 1898. So having Christopher here is a great way to bridge the gap between uh, audio and visual when it comes to presenting the story of 1898. So, Chris, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Now, I want to start off with Lorray because Lorray ended our episode last time by telling us what the residents of Wilmington would have faced as the sun went down on November 9th, 1898. Uh, obviously, the city was tense. There was definitely a lot of rumblings of what had been issued with the White Declaration of Independence earlier in the day. And then there was definitely anxiety awaiting the community as the Committee of Colored Citizens were supposed to present their response on the morning of November 10th by 7.30 a.m. And so, Lorraine, as the sun is coming up on November 10th, 
again, what is the city like? Kind of set the stage for our listeners going into what will be a fateful day for Wilmington. Well, I think initially you can say that everyone was exhausted, that the city had been an armed on the edge kind of place for many, many weeks prior to the election on November 8th. And the tensions that the election campaign had brought to the surface and exacerbated with racial tensions and economic tensions, it just was not a good place to be for the city of Wilmington, regardless of your race. The white community had 24-hour patrols, Those men were exhausted. The women had been cooking and feeding these men 24 hours a day themselves. The African-American community was also on edge and knew that things were in a dangerous place. And unfortunately, one of the things we have to realize is that for the most part, the information we have about the events of November 10th come from the perpetrators of the violence, the white participants. And so we have to understand their perspective on how they're recording their events and what they were thinking and how they were thinking, and then see that as a lens to understand what the African-American community was experiencing. We do have a few firsthand accounts from African-Americans in Wilmington, but much, much more from the white side of things. Well, and I think it's important to remind our listeners that this has been such a coordinated and a methodical campaign leading up to the election and especially in this day after that they're trying to control the narrative of what's happening as it's happening. I mean, one thing that I learned from from your book, Larray, is that the newspaper here in Wilmington, the Wilmington Morning Star, which, as I mentioned in the last episode, is the precursor to the Star News that I work for. Um, again, we're not the same. I just want to say that up front. They were publishing reports as the gunfire was happening later in the day. And so this narrative is being built as the day is going on, according to the people who are perpetrating it, as you said. Now, David, I wanted to get from you just a little bit of, you know, as as the morning is getting going and we're waiting for or the, the city of Wilmington is waiting for this response from the Committee of Colored Citizens. We have a young lawyer named Armand Scott. He has been given the unenviable task of delivering this response to Alfred Moore Waddell. Unfortunately, he encounters a lot of this resistance that Larray mentioned of block captains, of patrols on the streets, and feels that intimidation and ends up just putting the response in the mail. So there is this lingering anxiety of when this response will come. So I'm curious from you, Coming at this from a journalist's perspective and trying to identify the players, where are our main characters on both sides? I mean, obviously, there's not as many accounts from the black community, but we have a lot of these bigger names in Wilmington that are perpetrating it. Where are they as this morning is getting underway and what are they doing? Are they preparing for something uh, big or are they hoping that maybe the day will just end as it as it does? 
Well, you have to remember that all that summer and fall, the uh, the white citizens of Wilmington had been arming themselves uh, with with every every gun and every piece of ammunition they could get, and they actually had to uh, uh, place orders to Richmond and, and Baltimore because uh, the the hardware stores in Wilmington ran out. And you also have to remember that uh, merchants would not sell guns or ammunition uh, to African Americans, uh, so it was a completely lopsided situation. But on the morning. Of, of November 10th, you had hundreds of white men with guns in the streets assembling at the uh, the Wilmington uh, Light Infantry Building because they had been told all along that that was the day that whites would take over their rightful place as, as, as the rulers of, of Wilmington. The night before, Colonel Roger Moore uh, had promised his followers that the next morning they were going to burn the daily record. That was a promise and that was that was a plan. So this everyone knew, although the whites knew from this summer of agitation that they were going to attack the record, regardless of the response from the colored citizens. And by the way, that committee was uh, was handpicked by Colonel Waddell and a few of the others. They did respond, as you know, in writing, and uh, it was put in the mail rather than delivered to Colonel Waddell's house. But the word quickly spread that this this committee uh, was accommodating, willing to do their best to meet Colonel Waddell's demands, particularly about getting um, Alex Manley out of town and stopping his newspaper. And, and as we know, um, Alex Manley had already left town. Um, there was a, a lynch mob and he, he was terrified and warned to get out of town. So you have a situation where these whites who have been agitating all summer are at last out in the street with their guns, with the opportunity to do what they have been wanting to do all summer, which is attack Alex Manley's newspaper and burn it down, which which they proceed to do. I think it's it's really important here, again, to underscore the fact that the accounts we have of this morning really allow us to place where the white community is. And, and Chris, I'm, I'm curious, one part of your movie uh, or your documentary and a, and a part of David's book and LeRae's research has really been about trying to find those black accounts of the day. And I'm curious, as you were putting your film together, were you able to find some of that? Were you able to find descendants who could speak to this day in particular? Because this, again, becomes such a fateful day in Wilmington and, and we just don't know that much from the black community side. Yeah, um, you know, not only just with this, the Wilmington uh, massacre, but just a lot of accounts for black history, period, you know, has been kind of lost over the years because a lot of times in our community, you know, we rarely probably wrote anything down. It was really passed down through stories and, and stuff like that um, by an, an elder person. And so when that person died or, you know, they just went senile or something, you know, a lot of times that history kind of just went away with them. And so it's always been hard, you know, especially for African-Americans to really, you know, pass this this knowledge down without writing it in a book or some type of manuscript or something. Um, but with certain accounts, you know, just from my own research and talking to certain direct descendants, you know, a lot of them didn't even realize what happened, you know, or find out what happened until they got later on, you know, older themselves. You know, so I know even with uh, Dr. Lewin Manley, um, Alex Manley's grandson, you know, just spending some time with him, you know, just talking about, you know, his aunts, you know, at the time, I think they were probably about 10 or 11 during the massacre and their accounts of it. You know, they just talked about 
white men going around and just, you know, killing black people. There were small kids at the time. So even with that, you know, it was just a terrifying um, experience that they really tried to forget about and didn't really want to talk about anymore. And then also you had people like Reverend Kirk, who had a written account. Um, I think he was over at Central Baptist Church in Wilmington. You know, he had another account as well that was put out about the massacre. So there's only a small few, a handful of accounts um, from the African-American perspective and that side. Um, You know, again, I think people are still trying to research and trying to find certain letters. I know even with Dr. Manley's grandmother, Caroline Sadjwar Manley, Alex Manley's wife, she had a few letters um, about it, but it didn't really go into detail. She just talked about, you know, why their grandfather left and talked about, you know, the massacre somewhat. And that's why he had to leave Wilmington. But you don't really have a lot of those accounts. Again, this just isn't a Wilmington situation. This is just an African-American history situation, you know, all across the board, whether it's slavery, you know, sometimes with the civil rights movement and all these other things during that whole reconstruction period as well of just those stories getting lost out there. Well, I also think that you see a lot of African-Americans, unfortunately, having to flee Wilmington and taking those accounts with them elsewhere. And maybe they aren't recorded in a way that can connect them back to Wilmington or, or lost in a way. And so I think just the nature of the day as well makes it uh, a hard thing to to find yeah. and unfortunately not well recorded. And I know it's a couple of uh, descendants that I've been and talked to, like talked to recently the past couple of years where they've actually started just to take the initiative. You know, I know one guy, he's in New York and his great great grandfather left Wilmington during this time period. And he's trying to, you know, uncover that stuff. All he has is just a couple of photos and some stories that were passed down to him. You know, that's it. And so he's just trying to take the research from there. And then also I found some other descendants of Alex Manley's there out in California. And they talked about how, you know, Manley, you know, lived his life, you know, after the massacre in Philadelphia and, you know, had pretty much had like a bodyguard with them, you know, a lot of times as well, just that fear of everything. But I thought the interesting thing that he also told me that, Alex Manley still had, you know, he still lived a decent lifestyle as well. I don't know where he got his money from. I guess he was able to save some of his money, but they still continue to have a decent lifestyle, you know, in Philadelphia, you know, until his death. And, you know, he also shared some some photos as well that really haven't been seen by anyone. That So you still have those direct descendants that are still trying to, you know, put together those pieces of not only, you know, the day of the massacre, but the aftermath as well. Yeah, a lot of these accounts we have, in fact, most of them, uh, you know, come from newspapers, uh, white supremacist newspapers written by by white reporters. And I found it very interesting in all of the coverage that I read from the white newspapers, national and local, not one reporter that I could find ever interviewed a single black person. So that tells you what we're dealing with uh, here and this absolute absence of a, a perspective and a voice from the black community. One a uh, resource I found that was very helpful in addition to the ones that uh, Chris mentioned was um, William Henderson, the lawyer, left a long account um, that I got through his uh, granddaughter. Um, and he had some some pretty interesting uh, details. And, and also the, the great-granddaughter of Thomas uh, Miller had some letters from him. But again, there's very, very precious few accounts from African-Americans. One interesting thing that did help a little bit was that 
Once um, these 2,100 or so African-Americans fled Wilmington, they went to towns that had black newspapers. Obviously, these newspapers didn't dare send their black reporters down to cover the events in Wilmington, but they did interview the families. And you did have some fairly fresh real-time recollection this there through through the black press. But again, that was that was pretty rare and, and couldn't compare in any way to the narrative that was crafted by the white supremacist newspapers. Well, and it also goes to show just how important the daily record was to the Wilmington community, because it was a black run newspaper for the black community who was giving them a voice where these other publications just weren't. And so what happens to it here in a second that we're going to talk about it, it makes it even more of a tragic loss. It's not just the loss of a, of a paper and not just a loss of a business, but the loss of a voice in the community for the, the community that does not have uh, that large of a voice at this point. And their um, back editions were destroyed in the fire as well. And that was very important to understand black life at the time. I mean, very few have, have been on earth since then. Yeah. Well, one thing I want to, I want to do before we get to the daily record is, Alfred Moore Waddell did give this deadline of 7.30 a.m. on November 10th. He waits about 30 minutes, it seems, goes to the Wilmington Light Infantry Building, which people can still see today on Market Street in Wilmington. And he basically tells them that the the, the response has not come, even though, tell me if I'm wrong, but he knew that it had been put in the mail and that it was not going to come within the deadline. He knew what Armand Scott had done. And so what was the plan moving from that moment forward? Was it all out violence, which is what it became, or was there more of a structure to it? I think it was controlled chaos at the beginning. And the leadership in Wilmington had created this tension that I've spoken about several times. And just understanding human action, reaction, nature, these people needed some sort of outlet to release that tension. And I believe that the leadership of Wilmington realized that they use these words, fumigate the city with the ashes of the record. And that would be that breaking point for the community. And it would also serve that purpose of removing an organizing voice for the black community too. So burning the press building, I think was a given. And once that happened, the leadership through Waddell told the men of Wilmington, you have done your duty, go home and relax. And they kind of did and they kind of didn't. There was a group of men that left the burning of the press building and got on trolleys and found their way over to the Brooklyn area. And we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail, but that's how it devolved. Well, it, it almost sounds like, and this, this sounds so disgusting almost, that the prize for all of this tension and, and having such a tense night and, and being block captains and ratcheting up all of this, the prize was getting to go burn the daily record. That was what he had promised. That was what he was telling them they could do that day. And so for all these men, I mean, when he gets there, it's said that there's about 500 men at the Wilmington Light Infantry Building. It starts to build higher and it, there's like this desire to go do this. And, and that just seems like even if, if you're if you're not looking for violence, just wanting kind of craving that that moment, that that action is really uh, uh, despicable, seems like a yeah, uh, you have to a remember that. Word. 
Yeah, that all summer, the newspapers, and particularly the News and Observer in, in Raleigh with Josephus Daniels, the editor, had been telling whites that um, there was a black riot being planned, that blacks were stockpiling weapons and people had to be on edge. And in fact, the whites even made a plan to evacuate uh, women and children to various safety points, mostly mostly churches, in anticipation of this black riot. So that explains in one way why these whites who had been uh, arming themselves all summer were so eager to finally uh, be able to, to shoot someone or to destroy something. And uh, you also have to remember Alex Menley's editorial from back in August was what first uh, put the the Daily Record in, in the crosshairs of the white community. And we can talk later about what, what was in that editorial and what he said, but that incensed the white community and made, the, uh, made Alex Manley and uh, the Daily Record a particular target beyond the fact that it was the voice of the black community and, and these whites definitely wanted to silence that voice. Yeah, and, and Lorraine and I spoke with Jan Davidson in our previous episode because the Cape Fear Museum here in Wilmington has some copies of the Daily Record, not the one that includes uh, Alex Manley's editorial that you're referencing. But we spoke a little bit about how just the the reprint of that and and just using it to kind of add fuel to the fire over the the fall and up to the election. Definitely, you're right, made it a target, and then it kind of culminates in this march to the Daily Record on the morning of November 10th. And one thing that I, I got from reading uh, David's book and, and LeRae's book is that as these 500 or so armed men make that march from the Wilmington Light Infantry Building over to the Daily Record Building over on 9th Street, where it used to stand, they start picking up people as they go. They, they have people who they're walking by homes because if you know Wilmington, that's a residential area. They're walking by homes. People are seeing this. They were waiting for this, it sounds like, in some ways. And so men go off and join with their guns and, and, and women watch the, go, uh, watch the crowd go by. And it, it, again, it, I equated it as a, a kind of a snowball picking up things as it goes downhill. And by the time it gets to the daily record, I mean, they're, they're ready to do something and they do. I mean, was the intention to burn it down or was it just to destroy the press? So I think that the overall focus was destroying the ability of the black press to coordinate across the city for African-Americans. You know, the, the story goes that, you know, Waddell put being the Confederate colonel that he was, he put the men in skirmish lines and marched them in orderly fashion down the street. And it was almost like a parade, people on the Bellamy mansion porch waving at them and children joining along on the side, marching along with the um, men. And um, once they arrive at the press building, they are no longer in a predominantly white community. They're more in a predominantly African-American community. So they instantly have to become more defensive because they are, these white people had been hearing rumors of African-Americans preparing themselves for a retaliation that never came but they didn't know that at the time. And um, Manley had been forewarned, his life was in danger, he wasn't there. They knock on the door, no one answers. And it's kind of like, oops, we broke the door in, let's see what's in here. And they ransack the building and, oh, well, there's some kerosene lamps and, and oops, we spilled the oil from the kerosene lamps. And oh, look, there was some more kerosene in a closet and oh my, we spilled it. Gosh, shame on us. And then it somehow catches on fire. And 
they um, ransack it, burn it, and the African-American fire crew is called to put out the flames because they didn't want a widespread fire across the city. And um, the fire crew was held at the intersection watching the building burn until it was beyond repair. And then they were allowed to extinguish the flames. And Wydale tells the men to go about their own business at home. And it's interesting to note that that building where the press was belonged to St. Luke's Church. And Manley was renting the space. And that is the only instance of reparations to anyone as a result of the violence on the day of November 10th, 1898, because the church was reimbursed for the cost of the lost building. Is there any evidence that Waddell suddenly starts to see that this agitation, this anger, all of this that he's built has suddenly become uncontrollable? Because at this point, he's surrounded by more than a thousand people with guns. They've now torched a building and he's telling them, okay, you know, everyone go home. But is there any idea that maybe he saw things were getting out of control? And, and uh, Lorray, in your book, you, you reference this as um, he created a white supremacy monster. And now he, it's hard. I, I, it sounds like it's hard for him to now put that back in its cage and, and go about it in an orderly fashion because you've given people the permission to do something terrible and then tell them, all right, well, that's enough. Let's stop there. I mean, did any of you kind of see any evidence of, of maybe any of these people in power seeing that they were suddenly out of control? Not yet. Okay. We'll leave it there. Yeah. Well, Waddell's account came from a a specious account that he wrote a couple of weeks later for Collier's magazine. And I'm not sure I believed anything there, but he claimed, oh, we accidentally burned uh, the building. We didn't mean to burn it down. Uh, we just wanted to shut down the newspaper. And he claimed that he gave this speech to the men saying, oh, our work is done and you can all go home. I'm not sure uh, I, I believe that. But he did over the, over the course of the next day or so issue uh, three proclamations saying, you know, there's not going to be any uh, armed men running around the street anymore now that I'm here. This is after he had uh, appointed himself mayor and and, and appointed the, the mob leaders as, as city councilman and police chief and so on. Um, so you do get, uh, as Lorraine said, that he had created this monster and it, and it had gotten out of control. And he said, now I'm in charge and there's no need for all these uh, of these people running around town with guns and please stop. And of course, he was completely ignored by the red shirts and by the vigilantes. And I also saw something in um, one of the accounts like Waddell's that was written after the event. And it was Walker Taylor's personal copy, which Walker Taylor was the commander of the Wilmington Light Infantry. And he wrote the words masterful duplicity in the column describing that um, the white leadership had created an atmosphere of violence and a strategy to quell that violence and then their subsequent ability to call it a riot. And so they caused it, they stopped it, and they said, oh, it wasn't our fault. Somebody else did it. So that's already recasting the narrative of what happened and why it happened right from the get-go. And um, I think the control ended when the building was burned and the men dispersed. Because you have to think about group mentality 
and you study this in social psychology and you think about groups and riots and um, they lose their sense of morals and a compass on what they should and shouldn't do. And I believe that that's some of what happened to these average Joe guys who got caught up in the day's events, who got caught up in the rhetoric and the propaganda. And um, I think had they had their senses about them and maybe less whiskey in them, they would have made different decisions. But it it went the opposite direction in a tragic way. Yeah, one important thing to remember is uh, Colonel Walker Taylor, who's the commander of the Wilmington Light Infantry, is also uh, one of the top uh, conspirators for the coup. He's one of the leading white supremacists in the city. And not only that, the entire Wilmington Light Infantry is made up of, of white supremacists. So they were supplied with uh, a Colt rapid fire gun. Uh, by the city's white merchants earlier that summer, uh, they'd raised $1,200 to buy him this gun because they were the merchants were worried uh, because Wilmington was 56% black. They had been uh, hearing seeing all these newspaper stories about blacks stockpiling weapons and 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 starting riots, so they felt they they needed this this gun. But uh, you also have Colonel Walker Taylor as things are starting to get out of control, sending a telegram to uh, Governor Russell, a Republican in Raleigh, who's from Wilmington, uh, is a member of the Wilmington uh, Gentry, knows the city extremely well. And Colonel Taylor says, situation serious. We need to uh, have the Wilmington Light Infantry and the Naval Reserves called out by you, the governor. And you have to remember, these were basically the National Guard of the day. And they were supposed to answer to uh, the governor in Raleigh, but in fact, they answered to the white supremacist leadership. And once Governor Russell, knowing he had to know that this was a false description that he's getting from Colonel Walker Taylor, uh, that blacks are rioting and we need to call out the infantry. Well, that gave a white supremacist colonel, the leader of the white of the Wilmington Light Infantry permission from the governor then to unleash two state militias against black citizens. And that's where things really got out of control. Well, and I think that answers a question that people are probably thinking as they listen to this. Why was there no law enforcement involvement? <laughs> Why are we talking about a, a, a militia here that is not deployed to stop violence? And the answer to that is it really depends at this moment on who's leading them. And who's leading them is also leading this coup. And so it's hard to think of things in a normal situation. We think of, of what might happen now. Obviously, in 2020, there has been such a tenuous relationship between situations that are seen as, as peaceful or misinterpreted or all kinds of things. And then the reaction from law enforcement. But the reaction here was nothing because that was exactly what the people in charge wanted. And so that's why you don't see any of this be curbed. Now, as we've alluded to, this does escalate even further. It moves into what is the predominantly African-American community. Today in Wilmington, it, you know, I think you, you would recognize that particular side of Wilmington as the north side. Where a lot of this happens is in what is now known as the Brooklyn Arts District, where there is a little bit more of diversity in the residents. But our first kind of incident where there's violence is there in the Brooklyn District, as it was called. Chris, as you have been making your first film and then now the sequel, how important was it to go into a community like the North Side? 
and, and, and talk to people and see if there are descendants who whose family and ancestors did stick around? I mean, have you been able to find people who can speak to to living in that part of the community during this time? Yeah, a few, a few. I found a few, but a lot of them, man, they've, you know, they've already, you know, gone and left because, you know, I think it speaks to a bigger issue than just the, the 1898 massacre. It's just, you know, the um, the push out of African-Americans still in that area, you know, to this day, through all type of different things, whether it's gentrification or whatever. So even folks who whose families didn't leave after the massacre that stayed probably until like the 40s or 50s, you know, eventually left anyway, because you still had, you know, hard racism, not only in Wilmington, but just through the South in general, you know, which just people just left and just got tired of it, you know, in general. So even if folks that didn't leave, you know, during the massacre of 1898 and say, you know what, we're staying and, you know, we're just going to do what we need to do to just, you know, survive in this white supremacist system. Eventually, you know, people die and, you know, their kids come and grandkids come and they just say, you know what, I just can't deal with Wilmington no more and just leave. So that's what you see a lot. But just hanging out in the community and, and just becoming friends with folks and, and really knowing folks. Um, again, you know, a lot of people just didn't know, you know, what happened, you know, in their family history. You know, they knew about the massacre, you know, eventually when people wrote books about it or, you know, when the state report came out, you know, that Lorraine did some years ago. And, you know, seeing Wilmington on fire and reading David's book. But a lot of them still don't know, you know, their own family's connection um, to that area, to the north side or the massacre of 1898. But they know that something did happen, though. So for me, one of the things I was tasked with doing was to identify the impact of 1898 on the African-American community. And one of the things, one of the resources we have is the city directories from Wilmington. So we have the 1897 city directory, and that gives us a name, a race, and an address, and an occupation. And we used graduate student labor, put all of that information into a database, and we found that we had been told that 4th and Harnett Zone, where the first murders happened, was an African-American community. What we found was that it was a mixed race community, that it was the beginning of an African-American community. But right at that point, it was mixed race. And on top of that, we found that some of the known shooters and some of the known victims were both residents in this zone. So they knew each other. And that's one of the other scary bits of this for me, that this propaganda campaign, this lack of um, personal control after all of this tension builds leads to neighbors killing neighbors on the basis of race. And um, so technology is helping us learn more. Folks like Chris and David going out and doing me more research helps us learn more. And I honestly hope that someone in your listener audience knows something, has something and wants to share it with someone. And, and please do, if you, if you have information that you've been sitting on or, or you found recently, share it with someone who is doing research on this. That is such an important part of this. And we're going to talk about that more uh, later on in our last episode. But the research is ongoing. This story does not have a period on it. And so this, that's a really important thing that we need to remember as we tell this story. It is still evolving, even though uh, it happened 122 years ago. But 
Chris and, and Lorray are right. There is still that push and pull between what today is known as the Brooklyn Arts District, again, along that 4th Street in Wilmington, where there is uh, construction, there, there's development, and then there is kind of that butting up against what is a residential community that over the years became predominantly African-American. And so you see that. But again, Chris is right. This this is a much larger issue than just 1898. But a lot of that tension just builds up to just a breaking point on November 10th. And so and that's why a lot of this can be traced back, at least to that. I do want to talk about what happens on 4th Street. Uh, again, we talk about 4th and Harnett, which is where the first shots are fired. The, the first unfortunate killing happens. What do we know happens there? Is this just men who break off from the daily record who end up coming into this particular neighborhood and, and finding groups of African-Americans or were African-Americans also out on the streets? Were they kind of trying to see what was going on, trying to understand what was going on so they could better protect themselves? Well, after the record was was burned, um, the the workers, uh, the black workers at the, at the Sprint um, cotton compress, which wasn't that far away, uh, first of all, could hear the smoke alarm and they could see the, the smoke coming up from the daily record. And at the same time, a lot of their wives were running to the compress to, to warn them, saying, oh, they're, they're burning down the city. There's white men with guns in the street. They're going to kill us all. Obviously, this alarms the I think there were almost 800 black workers at the Sprunt Compress, which I believe was uh, called itself the, la- the largest cotton compress in, in the country. And this was important for for Wellington's economy. And, and James Sprunt, the owner, didn't want to lose a day's work. And he also wanted to protect uh, his employees. He didn't want any of his employees getting killed. But as these rumors start flying, as the wives come over to the compress, the black men start gathering outside, wondering, do we go home? Um, uh, our homes are going to be burned. There's white men running around with guns. What do we do? James Brunt is trying to calm them. Um, some of the white supremacist leaders are showing up there. Some are counseling caution, but um, the white gunmen who hear about black men gathering in the street are all rushing from the record and they're gathering, and these are uh, they're a mixture of red shirts. They're the vigilance patrols. They're just armed citizens, and they start agitating to start killing black men right away. And and what's interesting is that uh, uh, people like George Roundtree uh, and Colonel Moore are trying to calm things down, and they want to arrange a way to get the black workers home through all these white checkpoints. And then they start, the, the white men, the only reason they break off is because they start hearing rumors that there are black men gathering at 4th and Harnett uh, on, on the edge of, of Brooklyn. And on some of these people were the workers from Sprunt who had gone back home because their wives have told them that the, you know, the whole black community was being burned, when in fact only the uh, Daily Record had been burned. And these are also members of the community who are alarmed because white men with guns are starting to show up in their community. And then you have this showdown at Fourth and Harnett. It's good to just kind of paint the picture of the day for people that it's good to remind that Wilmington's a much smaller community at this point. As Lorray kind of pointed out to me in one of our earlier discussions before recording, she said that Wilmington would not have had the sound pollution of the 21st century. There wouldn't have been cars, there wouldn't have been planes, there wouldn't have been all this activity. And so the sound of gunfire, the sound of, of shouting, the sound of marching, all of that would have been heard throughout Wilmington. And so there's definitely people taking notice to what's happened. Again, they probably already knew that something was 
potentially going to happen. And so they were already on alert. But Wilmington is a different city than what we see it as today as 1898 is unfolding. And by midday, I mean, martial law is declared. I mean, what does this mean as things start to devolve? Because at 4th and Harnett, people start dying. Yes. Around 11 o'clock that morning, that group of white men had found themselves at the intersection of 4th and Harnett and workers from the docks were there on an opposite corner. And you can imagine they were yelling at each other and um, a hired policeman later testified that he went to the intersection and tried to calm everyone and send everyone home. And that didn't work. And he feared for his life. So he left the intersection and went back about a block and a half away. And he said that the only people at that intersection that had guns were the whites. But the later accounts of that first interaction with gunfire, the white storytellers said that they were the ones being shot at. And that's why they justified what they did. But we do know that as soon as those shots rang out at 4th and Harnett, a handful of men died at that intersection almost immediately. Some were wounded and they fled and died later. Um, And from that point, there was a running firefight. And around that same time, a white man was shot further down Harnett Street. Uh, His name was Will Mayo. He became a martyr for the cause. He didn't die, but they wanted to avenge Will Mayo's being shot by these insurgent black men. And so they, they did a, if you were black, you had a target on you. And sort of thing. And they identified Daniel Wright as the man who shot at Will Mayo. Whether he did or not, we don't know. I kind of feel like I did a little bit of a CSI sort of thing, trying to track where people were and their movements on the map. And I think Mayo was probably shot by what we would call friendly fire. And um, so Daniel Wright, for whatever reason, perhaps he had offended someone in that group at some point in the past, but he was identified as the shooter. And he was um, essentially put in front of a firing line and told to run for his life. And he didn't make it very far. And he was uh, shot 13 times and left in the street to die. And there were numerous instances of men being shot from this point forward in the streets in Wilmington, in this north end of town. And it was a running firefight. And if you were African-American, you had a target and it was on your back because you were running from this violence. You were headed towards your home. You wanted to take care of your family. You wanted to make sure that things in your family and your household were safe. And um, in fact, there was a doctor at the hospital in Wilmington, a white doctor who treated most of the gunshot victims of 1898, November 10th. And he gave a presentation to his colleagues the following year in Raleigh. And because he had the most experience of any of his colleagues dealing with mass casualty events and gunshot wounds. And he told the men at the convention that the brave men, the brave black men of Wilmington that were shot stood and faced their enemy. But in his description of the gunshot wounds he dealt with, They were all shot in the back because they weren't bravely standing and facing their enemy. They were wanting to take care of their homes and their families and running for their lives. So that's 
just an overview of how this unfolded, that it was chaos and people were fleeing to try to take care of their families. And um, we don't know how many people died at that intersection. There was one man whose uh, body was found days later under a porch about a half a block away. We just don't have all the details. And I don't know that we ever will because death certificates weren't required. And oral tradition helps us understand more of this. But, you know, we just sort of going back in time and witnessing the horror yourself, we may not know. And I want to say that majority of this action in terms of the the gunfire and and all of this, it's happening on that, you know, in that particular community in that, I mean, it stays pretty over there. It doesn't extend into Wilmington, you know, the Wilmington downtown, the historic district that we kind of think of today, does it? No, it didn't. It stayed put. And um, one of the reasons that this was called a race riot early on is because at the time in 1898, a race riot was white invasion of a black neighborhood in a fashion that ended in black death. And so this was truly considered a race riot in that frame, but we, it's more of a massacre. It's violence. It's a tragedy, but it stayed put in the North end of town for a variety of reasons. The red shirts were put on patrol in that part of town. The Wilmington light infantry was on patrol in that part of town. And that was the target audience for this violence in the first place was the African-American community to suppress them in any way, shape or form necessary. One thing that I, I want to know about, Larray, earlier you mentioned, and I think, David, you referenced this as well, that once they leave the Daily Record, they kind of disperse and some get on on trolley cars and they start shooting into homes and they start, you know, there is, as as you mentioned, chaos. But what are the black residents of this town dealing with beyond the the confrontations in the streets? uh, What is the residential part of this town seeing and and what are the residents, particularly the black residents, having to contend with? Well, as you can imagine, they're they're, they're terrified because armed white men are just cascading through the streets and shooting unarmed black men. Um, Another interesting little fact is that the only young trained Black men who trained in weapons, know how to, knew how to use weapons, um, had been called up for the Spanish-American War that summer, and there were two companies uh, that were sent out. And again, these were young Black men trained with weapons, armed with weapons. They were sent, called up for federal duty, and um, they were off in a training camp in Georgia on November 10th. But the white units, the Wilmington Light Infantry and the, the white units that were called up for the war were conveniently enough brought back in time for the coup. So you had a situation where uh, the black community is completely defenseless uh, with very few weapons. And at the same time, you have a highly armed, enraged citizen that's been a citizenry, white citizenry that has been primed for months by the newspapers to believe that that black men were rapists that they were coming to take your jobs, that they had no right to vote, that the, the black men in office were incompetent and uh, were, were basically criminals. They're being told this all summer. On top of that, you have 
um, Alex Manley's editorial about race and sex, which enrages white people. So you have this enraged uh, group of hundreds of armed white men. On top of that, you have two state militias armed and out looking to kill black citizens. And what's really outrageous about this is they were still in federal service. These were federal soldiers because they hadn't been mustered out yet. So you had federal soldiers in uniform targeting and killing black citizens. So for the black community, this must have been absolutely terrifying. And then it's no surprise that people fled with the clothes on their back, trying to get out of the city to anywhere they thought the white mobs wouldn't go. And of course, as we know, they went to a, a, a black cemetery, they went to the swamps and went to the woods uh, to try to hide, to get away from the, from the gunmen. It's November and uh, it starts raining um, at night and, it, and it's cold, so it must have been miserable. They're out there for at least two nights. So essentially, that's what's happening in, in, in the black community. And Reverend Kirk, who was reverend, referenced earlier, gave a pretty harrowing account of how he and his uh, immediate family uh, got out. And uh, William Rever uh, Henderson talks about it as well. Uh, it must have just been an absolutely terrifying day and night and, and, and the following weeks as well. You know, if anybody out there has seen the movie The Purge, it's pretty much similar situation where you have a group of people that had all this built up tension and, and racial hatred towards another group of people. And then for a certain amount of time, they can really do what they wanted to do. And, you know, it's, it's just like the, you know, the movie, the purge, you know, it's that same type of situation, things they really probably wanted to do anyway, you know, but just couldn't do it, you know, at the time, but when they found they had the opportunity to do it, they did it. I think I referenced this previously in our, in our previous episode, but, there's this idea that when people are, are putting out these speeches and they're printing these editorials, it, it made me think of that phrase where someone is uh, saying the quiet things out loud. And that's what these people were doing. I mean, they had transitioned from saying these horrible things in public to to being proudly open about their white supremacy and their ideas of white supremacy to then enacting them which is something before this they probably thought about. If, if you're capable of this, it's probably something that has crossed your mind. They're taking the opportunity to put those thoughts into action. And that's got to be scary for the people who are on the other end of those guns. I mean, they, they were issuing threats and they were issuing demands and they were issuing ultimatums with a gun pointed at you. I mean, that, there's nothing scarier. Yeah, that was one of the most um, amazing things when I started looking into this was the fact that they announced ahead of time what they planned to do. They were very open about it. It wasn't a secret. Um, they said they were going to win uh, the election by the, the ballot or the bullet or both. Um, in all the speeches, the white supremacists, including Colonel Waddell and Charles Acock, a future governor, basically incited white men to kill black men to prevent them from voting. And, and their two main goals were to prevent black men from voting and to prevent black men from ever holding office again. And the newspapers and the speeches just incited this hatred among the whites. And that was all unleashed uh, on this day. But it was premeditated. It was planned. It wasn't an accident. They were carrying out what what they had been uh, told to do and what they wanted to do. Was there any evidence that there were premeditated specific 
murders. You know, obviously there is an amount of chaos happening and, and, and you're shooting into crowds and you're shooting at people who are around you. But was there any evidence that someone had taken a vendetta out on a specific person in town? Or was this really just about random acts of violence when you had the opportunity? This is an area where we don't really know the answer to that question. However, there, there was one man, Carter Peeman. He was um, taken into custody to be banished. And um, everyone else who was taken into custody to be banished was. They did not die as a result of everything that happened on November 10th or 11th. But Carter, something happened, and he was killed on the 11th on the train going out of town. And we don't really have a clear picture of that. Again, I think this is a, a casualty, for lack of a better word, of the bias in the narrative from the historical record. We just don't have the voices from the Black community recording the events of that day. And we have more from the white community. And I spent days upon days upon days pouring through archival collections in the State Archives in Raleigh and UNC Chapel Hill at Duke University and all across the state where there are mounds and mounds and mounds of papers from white members of the community who recorded their experiences. And there's just not that equivalent within the Black community to help us know all of these more specifics. I hope, and like I said earlier, I hope things come to light over time and the work that we've all done to this day provides a foundation for future research. Yeah, Lorraine is right. And she's done uh, the original research and done more research and deeper research than anybody on this. Uh, and she's exactly right. We just don't know. But we do get an indication uh, through the banishment campaign where uh, the white supremacist leaders specifically cite and, and single out black and white leaders who were considered considered troublemakers. And they were the ones who were uh, uh, basically banished, evicted from town at gunpoint, put on the trains and said, if you ever come back to Wilmington again, we'll kill you. And not one of those people ever came back. But that gives you a sense that there were specific targets who weren't killed, but who were banished. And one thing that I found very interesting as I was reading uh, all this research, they were still being methodical about who they were targeting. They weren't going to target people who were in specifically point appointed positions. I forget the gentleman's name, uh, unfortunately, but he was the port Dance. collector. Yeah. And he was federally appointed. So removing him from his position might have incurred federal intervention. And therefore, they knew that depending on how these people got in their positions, whether they were community leaders or appointed leaders, they had to be very specific on who they were targeting or they could undo all of this that they were trying to do. And I think that's very important to see just how methodical they were still being even in the heat of chaos. They were very, very much aware of um, the possibility of federal intervention. As it turns out, they had absolutely nothing to worry about. But there were two instances with uh, captains in the Wilmington Light Infantry um, who the organizers of the coup pulled them away and, and stated 
flatly that we can't have you directly involved with this because you are a federal officer right now here in the United States Army. We can't have you being involved. And there were two specific incidents. So they're very much aware of this. But as I say, they didn't need to be because the federal government had no intention of intervening in any way. Was the reason the federal government didn't come in? And obviously, the the president at the time is President William McKinley. He is made aware of the situation, but he doesn't do anything. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the reason is because the governor doesn't ask him to. So, again, it goes back to local government impeding any type of reaction. Right. McKinley actually had spies in Wilmington informing him of what was going on. There's a little bit of correspondence in the McKinley papers. And um, he he had Pinkerton types here informing him about the upcoming election, the tensions and then what happened. But the powers of the president weren't as broad and overarching as they are today. You have to remember, we're only about 30 years removed from the Civil War. We don't have a full, completely unified nation still. Um, Julian Shakespeare Carr told McKinley that if McKinley brought troops to Wilmington to push for the peace and advocate for the the lives and bodies and belongings of black citizens, that he would have another civil war on his hands. And so McKinley had his hands tied in so many ways. And the really only precedent for the president to get involved in an action in another state was if federal employees were impeded in their ability to do their jobs. So yes, John C. Dancy, who was collector of customs for the port, he was a federal employee. He was not touched. He was probably protected so that he couldn't be that touch point for McKinley to send someone into Wilmington. The same way that the white community was just looking for a reason and something to inflame their supporters, uh, they were protecting those supporters from not giving the federal government reason to intervene, which is, uh, again, very methodical. Um, exactly. One thing I, I want to touch on, and, and all three of you can answer this because you've all had to do your own research and, and your own uh, process to get to either a book or a film that you've made. The information from the day of 1898, before the day and after the day, is just kind of rife, as we've said, with misconceptions, with inaccuracies, because there's people controlling the narrative. They're doing all kinds of things. And so, I mean, one thing that I heard when I was here in town and was one of the first things I ever heard about 1898 is that they were killing so many people that they were dumping bodies in the Cape Fear River and it was red with blood. Now, that that is inaccurate in terms of what we do know for sure, it seems. But how do you, as, as, as journalists, as researchers, as, do, as documentarians, kind of sift through all of this and weed out the hyperbole from the fact? Well, the, the, the bodies in the Cape Fear, I think that comes from uh, Colonel Waddell, his speech on October 24th, uh, when he said we're going to impose uh, uh, white supremacy and get rid of, quote, Negro rule if we have to clog the Cape Fear with carcasses. Um, I didn't find any evidence of of the Cape Fear being clogged with with bodies or any any eyewitness statements. And I know, as I say, Lorraine has done really the original research on this. And, you know, I don't know what you found, Lorraine, but I'd be surprised if you found any documented uh, accounts where the, the river was was clogged with bodies. 
I didn't find accounts of clogging the river. I mean, if you just physically look at that river, it would be very hard to <laughs> clog that river. Uh, it's it's a moving thing. But I did find instances where a couple of guys who worked on the docks were shot and killed at the docks and they were pushed into the river. Mm. But I, I agree with you, David. Uh, Waddell's fiery speech, and he repeated it multiple times. If we have to clog the Cape Fear River, we'll do it. And that got ingrained in the psyche of Wilmingtonians, white and black. And um, so when I first started my research, gosh, it's been almost 15 years ago, I would ask people what they knew about 1898. And that was one of the first things they told me that, you know, that river is full of bodies. So, yeah. And, you know, it's just, you know, it's just stories that have been passed down, you know, from generation to generation, you know what I'm saying? So, you, you might have had someone's grandparents or great-grandparents that kind of lived through the massacre, maybe as a small kid. And, you know, when stuff like this is going on, man, you know, it's like sometimes you might, you know, see things that you really don't see. You know what I'm saying? It's just a scary situation. You know, so, you know, none of us have really been in that type of situation, you know, to really experience it. So, you know, once they come out of that and these stories get passed down, sometimes, you know, those type of things get 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 brought up, just like um, Lorraine and David said about, you know, Waddell is making these speeches constantly about doing that. And so people kind of just put those two together and those stories kind of just get passed down, you know, from generations to generations. Not saying it didn't happen. We just don't have no proof, you know, of it happening. But again, I mean, I think to a larger point, how do you all know what to trust when so many people were trying to deceive not only the newspapers of the time, but in time, the history books, the narrative of this moment in history. I mean, how do you know what can be trusted and what can't? So I tried to think like an attorney and that's kind of scary in and of itself. But <laughs> I, I was thinking, OK, we need to get enough evidence to prove a point, whether it was who shot a gun or who was on the other side of the barrel and got murdered. And every time I had a reference to a death, I took note of it and I had little index cards and I eventually put it into an Excel spreadsheet and started seeing correlations. And if it comes from more than one source, then I believe that that probably is truthful. And if it comes from, a biased source, which is potentially a Waddell kind of source, um, you have to to really consider the surrounding environment and the story that it's put into context with to know if you think that's true or not. And I found references in, you know, there's sensationalized, I think, accounts in some of the newspapers in the days afterwards about bodies being piled in wagons and things like that. But then I find a previously unknown letter from a Wilmingtonian who wrote to a friend that's out of town and they corroborate some of those things that they saw. So you have to see that we'll never really ever know how many people were murdered that day and the ways in which they were murdered and where their bodies are. But we can know it was a horrible atrocity that happened. I know um, it brings me back to a, I was hired some years ago to help these guys do a research project about the Tulsa massacre. 
And we had went to Tulsa and everything and talked to a few historians there. And one guy at uh, Tulsa University, he was saying that they've even done that with that situation, that 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 massacre is kind of maybe kind of over, you know, not over exaggerate, you know, because it's a terrible event that happened. But he was saying that some of the accounts really don't add up and that you don't have to do that. You know, this was a tragic event. You know what I'm saying? It was an act of white supremacy. You know, it was that. And let's and that's what it is. You don't really have to add, you know, the add ons to it. And I think the same thing with the Wilmington massacre is that it was a coup. African-American lives were killed, <laughs> you know, set in, you know, set in Jim Crow um, segregation throughout North Carolina. You know, that in itself, you know, is enough to what we need to, to, to prove, really, you know, is just the impact that it had on African-Americans in Wilmington and throughout North Carolina. Now, do we know why the violence stopped as the day went on? Is there a reason why the, the armed mob of white supremacists, uh, of white Democrats, why they felt they had done enough? It, it, did they get to a certain point? Was I mean, why does 1898, the violence on November 10th end? Because they had accomplished their goal, which was the coup by mid-afternoon or by late afternoon, they had removed the city council, the mayor uh, and the police chief at gunpoint and appointed uh, the mob leaders and, and, and people who had taken part in the mob in government. So they controlled city government. Um, and that was their overarching goal. I mean, I think for a lot of these these armed white men who had been primed all summer, it was just a bonus that they were allowed and set free to go uh, shoot as many unarmed black men as they could find. But again, by by late afternoon, the city is in the hands of the white supremacists. And these are the people who had, had run the city before. And this is, is the, the dominant class economically. Um, they're in charge. And here's where we have people like Waddell saying, wow, we've, we've gone far enough. Let's get all that. And he starts issuing these proclamations, getting all these armed men off the street. He was really upset by the uh, banishment campaign because he wasn't consulted about it. And he immediately tries to bring order to things. The uh, uh, Colonel Taylor uh, realizes that the uh, the Wilmington Light Infantry and the Naval Reserves um, have basically done their job. There, there is no black resistance. There's no armed resistance. Everyone's fled to the swamps. There's really no reason uh, to continue with with the bloodshed. So it's it's done. They run the city. It's over. They've got a lot of things to deal with, but the the wanton violence it, it is over for the day. And let's just be clear that. The coup you're referencing is really what Waddell and groups like the Secret Nine and, and these powerful men in town, this was what they ultimately wanted. They had won the election, but they weren't going to be taking over seats at, at the levels that they won for a couple months. And so they wanted change now, and they knew they had an opportunity to take it. And what they did was they walked into City Hall and they started escorting people out. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, Loray, but they started giving them the ultimatum of you're going to resign or you're going to face the men who are outside your door. Right. So the technical definition of a coup is an armed overthrow of a legally elected government. And the leadership of the Secret Nine had this piece of the puzzle in their minds and planned out. In many ways, sometimes I see Waddell as just the face of all of the machinations that are going on in the background. And he's the, the happy person to take all the 
credit and potentially all the blame rather than people like Hugh McRae or James Brunt. And so on the afternoon of the 10th, the Board of Aldermen was called to City Hall and they were met with about 200 armed men in City Hall, which is Thalian Hall's building. And um, the way the city charter was written is if a member of the Board of Aldermen resigns his position, the existing board would vote to fill the vacancy until the next election. So one by one, those positions were resigned under duress, and there was an existing list of people to fill those positions from all the wards in Wilmington. And so in a matter of just a short period of time, the government of Wilmington transitioned from a legally elected board of aldermen to a fully appointed, selected group of men. And it was all done legally because they followed the rule of law as written in the city's charter. And Waddell was made mayor of the city of Wilmington. And for this guy, and we talked about him in the previous episode, he was a little bit down on his luck financially. And this meant he had a solid paycheck coming in to his household. So he was happy to take control and run the city. And they stirred the trouble. Waddell becomes mayor. And to run through his chain of thought, well, I'm in control now. And we were saying that everything was corrupt and everything was bad. And now we've done away with all that bad stuff. So now that good people are in, we've got to stop the violence. So that's the thought process in Waddell's head, too. For our listeners, I want to give you guys the opportunity to answer a question that I had when I first heard this story. November 10th, 1898 is referred to as the country's only successful coup. Why is it the only coup when there have been other coups in American history? Why? What made this different and what made it successful? Because I think that's the key word there. So when I was doing my research for the commission and I had seen references in indicating that this was one of the few types of things that it was in this country. And um, we finished the report. I had described the coup. I had written it all out. And our marketing department went with the headline, only successful coup d'etat in United States history. And the historian in me went, oh, no. (laughs) Because as a historian, you don't like to say, this is the only time this happened. This is the first. This is the last. Because inevitably, somebody's going to prove you wrong. And I was ready for the onslaught that came not only from within the United States, but also from other countries of people who wanted to point out other instances of coup d'etats in United States history. And I did my due diligence and I researched them all. And what I found was that they were temporary. They never really succeeded in the permanent peace of the equation. And many of those happened during military reconstruction after the Civil War. And the military reversed whatever the citizenry had tried to do in running their individual towns. And so Wilmington really is the only successful coup d'etat in United States history because Waddell and his group of men were put into power in controlling the city of Wilmington. And then they maintained that control up until the subsequent election in 1899. And the Democratic white supremacy control of Wilmington was reaffirmed in that election. So it is, unless somebody has something I don't know about, Mm -hmm. 
the only successful coup d'etat in United States history. And another key word is lasting. It lasted so long. Uh, right. It was basically permanent, whereas some of these other incidents, they, they might have taken over a situation for a matter of days. As you say, the federal government at that time during uh, Reconstruction would come in and, and correct things. In this case, it was so well planned and so meticulous. Um, it was remarkably successful, probably more successful than, than they had ever hoped for. And it was lasting. It lasted for decades. And it had an incredible impact on uh, voting rights uh, for African-Americans, uh, basically kept African-Americans from voting in any significant numbers for probably the next 60 to 70 years until the passage of the, of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, which the, the Supreme Court has most recently gutted. But it also kept um, African-Americans out of uh, appointed office and out of elected office for another 50 or 60 years, instituted Jim Crow. I mean, we could go on and on about the lasting impacts. And we will in our third episode. We're going to talk about some of those immediate and and long-term impacts with um, with our guests for that one. And so I, I want to close this out by talking about the end of the day. You know, we know we know what came of it for the white community. They got what they wanted. They, you know, at least for the white Democrats, the white supremacists, I can't speak for every white member of the community because there were white people who supported the, the black community and they were targeted because of it. But we know what happened for the, the white Democrats and, and the white supremacists. But what happened for the black community? They are they're fleeing their homes. Where do they go? Because as we've referenced for that first night, at least, they take refuge in cemeteries. They take refuge in swamps, and it is a cold November night. So what kind of conditions are they dealing with, it, and why swamps and cemeteries? African-Americans fled the city because the city was now no longer their home in a lot of ways. And we, we see them going to those swamps and to the cemeteries as places of refuge, that's a cultural thing in the African-American community to run to places of safety like those. And um, but then in the days following, where did they go? Many never came back into Wilmington to even get their belongings. They just left. And we find them in places like Philadelphia, New York, Chicago. Uh, they're a lot in Cape May, New Jersey. And so they flee to those areas and never, ever come back. The ones who do come back are the ones who have a vested economic interest in the city. And we can talk about them more, I think, in the next episode. But those folks come back and find a new normal in Wilmington that takes them from entrepreneurs to second-class citizens in every way, shape, and form. And they had lost their jobs. I mean, uh, part of the, the, the Declaration of Independence was that uh, blacks would no longer have jobs and the jobs would be reserved for, for whites. Um, at, at, the, at the same time, the middle class had, had basically been destroyed by this coup and uh, the professional class, um, or a lot of the people in the banished camp management campaign were people from the professional class uh, who represented a real threat to white supremacy. And once they're gone, there really is less and less reason for, for black people to stay beyond being absolutely terrified that, the, that they're going to be murdered in their homes. Um, what was really interesting is, is Waddell and others and the white newspapers all said 
we have some, quote, good Negroes in our city. And as long as you know your place, and they use that term quite a bit, know your place, respect white authority, you are welcome to stay here. So I think some people who either couldn't afford to leave or had too much invested um, just decided they had to accept the way things were and the whites were perfectly happy to have them there because they did need their labor, despite the fact that they declared that uh, all white men would, would take over the jobs. They, they were very reliant on, on black neighborhood and uh, black labor. And in fact, Waddell tries very hard to get these people to come back uh, from the swamps because all the business people were complaining about losing their workers. And a lot of them said um, the African-American workers were, were much better and smarter and more efficient than the white workers. So it was an interesting situation of, of people fleeing because their economic structure has collapsed and they're terrified and other people staying because they have no means uh, to leave and they are willing to abide by white rule. You know, and also, you know, folks went to another area, you know, right in North Carolina when it was, you know, really about to do its thing, Parish Street, you know, in Durham, you know what I'm saying, in the Haytai area. You know, you find a lot of folks that left Wilmington went there to try to start over as well. You know, and I know John Merrick, who is one of the founders of NC Mutual Insurance, you know, even in his book, you know, he mentions the 1898 massacre briefly, but he talks about how something like that was bound to happen. When you have in Wilmington, you know, even though you have a, a mixed society and you have black and whites, you know, on city council and stuff like that. And in the day when you're pumping this stuff up that black people are taking over, or they're about to take over when the majority, you know, when white people really own most of the land, they own most of the businesses and you pumping out this rhetoric of black people taking over. He was saying that something like this was bound to happen. And so you had people from other parts of the state you know, commenting about what had happened in 1898 and stuff like that. And like I said, you said some people moved to that area also during this time. To close this out, I want to ask you guys a question that uh, I think you all can kind of answer because it's something that has really permeated the story and, and it's become a part of this narrative, especially last year when we saw or the state highway historic marker put up for the Wilmington coup. I'm curious how we in the community should accurately describe what happened on November 10th, 1898. Now, Lorraine, you call it a race riot in your report for the state and in the title of your book. David, you call it a murderous coup in the title of your book. Um, and last year, again, the, the, the state put up a highway historic marker that calls it the Wilmington coup, even though it originally had been inscribed or was set to be inscribed as the Wilmington race riot. I've heard it be referenced as an insurrection, as a massacre. And all of these might be accurate, depending on how you're speaking about this. But I'm curious, from what we know now, what is the correct way of encapsulating what happened here in Wilmington? And is there a correct way? And, and Lorraine, I'll let you start on that one. So, as I said earlier, I've been working on this since 2003. And the work that I did grew out of the 1998 centennial observances. And way back then, it was still being called a race riot, even though many people had begun to use the word massacre in some of their descriptions. And um, the official legislation that created the commission to study the violence was called the 1898 Wilmington Race Riot Commission. And as the state 
entity and me being the state employee who was working on the project on behalf of this commission, I was tied to using that phrase. And um, so that's why it's called the Race Riot Commission Report. And then the book is the Wilmington Race Riot. Now, the book was reprinted this year, and I tried with all my might to change the title. But the Library of Congress, all the way down the chain, didn't want that to happen. And so I'm still calling it a day of blood, the 1898 Wilmington Race Riot. But it is so much more than that. And even as we've moved from 2005, six, when I finished the report all the way to now, there's been so many things such as George Floyd, such as Breonna Taylor and, and everything in between that I don't, I'm, I don't let words get in the way of trying to explain using every word I can use to get across how atrocious the white supremacy campaign of 1898 was and the resulting murder in the streets of civilians who had nothing of any sort of reason for their murder other than the color of their skin. And so that's the long answer to an even more difficult question. And I really don't have a singular phrase that I use now to describe it. And you may have picked up on that when I talk in these <laughs> interviews, because I use violence, riot, coup, massacre, tragedy, all of these different words to try to get across how horrible what happened on November 10th was. Yeah, for, for shorthand, I use white supremacist coup, but I mean, it's a lot more than that. It was basically a premeditated, orchestrated murder. Uh, that was planned and and carried out in in a in a very well planned and coordinated effort. Um, it was fueled by racial hatred and resentment, uh, but it also had a political aspect. Uh, from the white supremacist point of view, they were they were fighting for their own political control because they knew. Uh, because uh, the 18 counties in eastern North Carolina uh, in around Wilmington um, all had black majorities. Wilmington itself had a black majority. They knew if black men were allowed to vote, um, whites would have a very hard time fairly holding on to their power. So they had to find a violent and unfair way to secure their power with the added benefit that they were able to keep black men from voting and from holding public office for so many years. So um, that's just a long-winded way of saying this really was a murderous event, a well-planned um, takeover of an elected government, and was spectacularly successful and long-lasting. Yeah, just to piggyback off what everybody said, I, I totally agree. You know, it's, it's all the above, really. <laughs> you know, it's not really one way you can really phrase it. Um, whatever word you use, massacre, racial terrorism, you know, that's what I use, cool. All of that. It's all the above, man. You know, it's not really one word to really describe it. I think today you would see it almost described as domestic terrorism, um, yeah, absolutely. knowing absolutely. knowing some of the things we've seen over the past year and in the past couple of years where there have been those homegrown attempts at racial violence, at political violence. And, and it is described as domestic terrorism. And so that is another phrase um, in writing this and, and researching this and, and everything. I also found it really hard to settle on one thing because 
settling on one thing seems as, as Larray and David and Chris mentioned, it feels like it minimizes something that was so important, that was so widespread, that was so overarching for so many years and just so tragic for a really already vulnerable part of the community that, as we mentioned in our last episode, had such promise in this area and to see that extinguished in such a violent and murderous and, and just tragic way is, um, I think it's hard to put into words, the correct words. So I, I want to close out by, we've talked about this day from sunup and I want to, I want to conclude on sundown. What is the state of Wilmington as the sun sets, as people go back to their homes, if they can on November 10th, I mean, you have citizens who are now taking refuge in swamps overnight. You have reports of death from the cold. I mean, what is the state of Wilmington at the end of, of again, this, this fateful day in its history? So um, you have dead men in the streets whose family are sneaking out under cover of darkness to retrieve their bodies, bury them in secret. You have others who are in the hospital being treated for their wounds. You have uh, women and children and as many men as possible fleeing the city, headed out to the swamps even farther, as far as they could go. The men who were identified for banishment were arrested in the course of the afternoon while the bullets were flying and they were put in the jail overnight And um, there was a mob that came to the jail to uh, take care of them through vigilante justice. But Alfred Moore Waddell and other leading men in the community prevented that from happening because that was yet another tool for them to say that they had brought control back to the city. And they didn't want to demonstrate that they had lost that control, that these men who were in the jail for their quote unquote protection were no longer protected by Waddell because they had been lynched that night. So these men were protected overnight. They feared for their lives. I'm sure they were looking out worried that, you know, something was going to happen that the, the jail would be breached and they would be lynched in the trees around the buildings and stuff. But, um, and Waddell and other leaders stood vigilant at the jail to make sure that didn't happen. The white community, they were still on edge and tense because they did expect retaliation even still at this point in the game. Even though none eventuated during the day, they still expected that there might be something that would happen that day later. So everyone was tense. Everyone was exhausted. I'm sure there's shock and there's a whole lot of sorrow for lost lives, lost families and a complete change in what Wilmington was for the African-American community. Overall, I would say that, you know, the mood obviously in the African-American community, one of sheer terror and, and just not knowing what the next uh, days and weeks were, were, were going to bring, except that it would probably be more terror and more displacement and more upheaval. Uh, for the whites, I'm sure there was a great sense of accomplishment because they had been waiting all summer and fall for this opportunity. And I'm talking about the white gunmen who went through the streets and, and possibly their families as well. I don't know. Uh, but there was a real sense of celebration. And in fact, there were celebrations in, in the days and weeks that followed in Wilmington and huge celebration um, in Raleigh. So 
terror on one side, celebration on the other. I think that we'll leave it there only because in our third episode, we're going to talk about the aftermath, both starting on November 11th and moving through the next days, weeks, months, and then decades, because this event has ramifications that are not only felt for decades, but are still felt today. And so we will pick up with our story in our third episode. I want to thank all of you for sticking with me through telling this story. As I've said repeatedly, this is not an easy story to tell, but having multiple voices who can come at it from different angles was uh, the way I wanted to tell it for this particular podcast. And so I'm so grateful. I would encourage everyone to go and pick up LeRae's book, A Day of Blood. I would encourage everyone to go pick up David's book, Wilmington's Lie. And I would encourage everyone to go see, find a copy of Wilmington on Fire. And uh, Chris, you're making a sequel. How is the production on the sequel going? It's going well, going very well. I'm in Wilmington now, actually. Been here for a couple of weeks filming. And, you know, it's totally different from the first film. You know, we're really focusing on Wilmington today and really showing those lasting effects, but also showing showing the resiliency, um, not only just from the African-American community in Wilmington, but just the city of Wilmington as a whole. You know, I think a lot of times that, get lo- that gets lost. I know even when I would go around and show the first film, a lot of people would just think that people in Wilmington are just sitting by and not doing anything. I'm like, no, that's not the case at all. And so I really felt like people really needed to see the resiliency, you know, of people in Wilmington that are really trying to bring, hopefully can bring Wilmington back to that period of 1897. And you got some remarkable people that are trying to do that. I will let all of our listeners know uh, and keep them up to date about uh, your film. I know you're you're going to be debuting some footage maybe later this year and then hopefully premiere the finished product next year. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the sequel. And uh, thank you again to all three of you. This was uh, an outstanding conversation, again, about something that's hard to talk about. But if we come out educating even one person, I think we uh, time well spent. So uh, thank you all so much. Thank, thank you, you, Hunter. Glad to do it. That's it for the second episode of Unearthing 1898. Thank you so much for joining me. And a big thank you to our guests, Leray Umfleet, David Zacchino, and Christopher Everett. Be sure to check back tomorrow, November 11th, for the third and final part of our series, in which we will detail the aftermath of the 1898 coup and massacre, and how the events we just shared with you forever changed Wilmington. Until then, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each of our episodes and all of my coverage of local history for the Star News. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. If you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can also email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter, which goes out every week. Sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com slash newsletters. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written Edited and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. By me, Hunter Ingram. 
You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com, or you can follow me on Twitter, at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing for the show is done by Adam Fish. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until our next episode, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth.